Well, thank you to DJ and the team for leading us in those songs as we think of the Lord filling the earth with his glory. And that's what we're here to celebrate is even the gravity of the glory of God come down upon us even as we consider and worship Jesus Christ, the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where we've been working through this portion of Scripture. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 35, and I'm going to read this for us. This is, in fact, God's Word. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, man of dust, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Holy God, we approach you with fear and trembling this morning, having come and confessed our sins, having 
recognized even the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin, recognizing that his resurrection conquers all sin and death and Satan and the world. And so we come praying to you, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit, bringing our petitions to you, our supplications, our appeals to you. Lord, we are overwhelmed even this morning. As we come to this place, we are overwhelmed with the cares and concerns of this world. We see all around us the swirl and tumult of this age. Lord, we do pray for peace, that we would be able to live peaceable and quiet lives. Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forward far and wide, and that we, your people, would be people of the gospel. We pray for the many people who are hurting, who are gripped by sadness and despair, Many who have labored long under sickness, who have had long-term effects of sickness. Many who are even in our own church who have had surgery and are recovering from surgery. Lord, those who have been kept away from people they love who have gone through great uh, sickness and hardship. Lord, these estrangements, These separations have been heartbreaking for us. Lord, all of us have been stressed and pressed. But Lord, we are so unbelieving. We we so infrequently turn to you. Lord, I pray that you would cause us all to turn away from our own self-reliance in the arms of flesh and turn to your strong arm, the arm of Almighty God, that we would look to you and your power to do a work in our lives. Lord, we do pray for those who are involved in these various convoys across the country. We pray that you would grant them safety and protection and that there would be peace in these demonstrations. We pray for the policemen who are tasked in their various roles with keeping the peace. We pray for all those who are still laboring in our health care that they would be encouraged to persevere in a thankless task, meet their needs, Lord. Also pray for our political leaders at various levels of government, for municipalities and provinces and even our federal government. We pray, Lord, that as they have maybe relied too much on their own abilities, we pray, Lord, that they would be cause to turn away from self-reliance and turn maybe even for the first time turn to trust in you with the fear of the Lord for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and Lord we are in desperate need of wisdom amongst our leaders Lord we do pray for those nations around the world in tumult and we we pray for those in Ukraine that are living in fear today. We pray for those in Russia that are also living in fear. Lord, we pray that your church would be strengthened in both these countries, that the seminaries in Kiev and elsewhere in the Ukraine and and the Baptist 
convention in Russia, all these places where your gospel is being preached, Lord, we pray you would strengthen all of them, even as these countries have such friction at the moment. We pray for brothers and sisters in China who are under even further restriction, harassment, imprisonment, and all manner of persecution. We pray that you would keep the church in China strong. We also pray, Lord, that they would bear witness even to the masses of of wayward Muslims who are also under a persecution. We pray that they would cry out to Jesus as Lord in the midst of this, that they would see Jesus as the true and only Messiah. Lord, we do pray that even this church would be a place where your gospel is proclaimed, not just from the pulpit, but from all the people, that we would be a place where the mission of God would be extended into this world, that we would have even the hope that is in Jesus Christ alone always on our lips. So we pray this morning that you would change us. We pray you would even speak to us by your word. That you would speak, O Lord, come work in us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be honest, in preparing for the sermon this morning, it seemed like with all of the the front of mind tumult of the convoys and the protests, that that would be the relevant thing to preach upon. And we see in the convoys and the protests, we see them, I, I think, expressing in a very messy and disrupting way what I feel is going on across the land, which is a national lament. And it doesn't matter what you think of the convoys or the protests of the government or anything. All of us are in a national lament. We're lamenting this fallen world. Now where that is directed will depend. I've just written an article, it's supposed to come out this week, with a, a dear friend who's a pastor in Quebec. It's always good when you can have an Albertan and a Quebecer doing something together. But it's just this cry of the heart we wanted to express, to, to, to look at what's going on in our country, in this national crisis. And, and what's easy when we have this front of mind, this national crisis, the, the crisis essentially of deciding how to transition to life after this pandemic, in this crisis... The temptation is to have our eyes lowered and to only fixate on what is right in front of our nose. And that's your temptation and it is certainly mine. But what we need to do is move from what seems to be relevant to what is hyper-relevant. And I'm not talking about Valentine's Day. It's okay. Go ahead. Get some chocolates for your wife. Buy her some flowers. 
We need to lift our eyes, and even with a val- this is the, this is all you get for Valentine's Day. Listen to this quote from Sa- Samuel Rutherford as he helps us to lift our eyes. He says this: "Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one." Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet, and yet, it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Why don't the guys write their wives poetry like that? Because they don't gaze on Christ like that. And I'm talking about myself. See, our problem this morning is not what's your view of the convoys. The problem is our limitation of vision. And what we need is to have our vision expanded beyond what is right in front of us. And so, this is why, on the one hand, 1 Corinthians 15 preaches itself. On the other hand, I feel utterly inadequate to preach about the resurrection. Just as when you hear about it, you feel inadequate in even thinking about the resurrection. But that's why I think when we think about the resurrection, we have to sort of be shocked out of our system. We need the wow factor that, that is closer to something like when we gaze into outer space or, or gaze into subatomic particles or when my family and I recently, when we look down, deep, deep, deep down into Horseshoe Canyon. Or you look up high into the sky and you see the moon. Or even with the naked eye, you see Venus. That's what we need. Even our natural analogies are weak. But they can be a start. Now the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35, he He's getting at the issue of of the how. Of the what kind of body do we have in the resurrection. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul then says, you're an idiot if you're thinking like that. That you're asking those questions, you foolish person. And he's going to proceed to point out things in the natural world that we can observe that help us think about the resurrection from the dead. And so he says, What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 36. The Greek construction that's translated unless it dies, it it could be, rendered uh, something like, unless it necessarily dies. It necessarily dies. Death, 
is the necessary condition for resurrected life. The kernel of wheat that he goes on to describe, he says, verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. You know, I mean, when uh, the kernel of wheat, I've, I've had lots of dealings with kernels of wheat uh, growing up on a farm and being a farmer. You put it, put the dry kernel of wheat, you put it into one of those little silos, a, a grain bin. You know, it, cor- corrugated steel, you keep it in there, keep it dry, and you can, it'll stay. So long as it's dry, it's not sown, it'll stay there as a kernel of wheat. But as soon as you take that out, and as soon as you put it into the moist dirt, as soon as you do that, it starts to die. It dies. It decays. It breaks down. And what does it do? It sprouts. It sprouts. The wheat sprouts. And it'll grow. And then you go to jug of juice, and they put it in your drink. I, I don't get wheat sprouts in my drink. It's embarrassing enough to admit that I go to jug of juice, I guess. But anyways. What dies doesn't look the same as what lives. What, what sprouts is different. It, it's, it's coming then from this death. Verse 37 what you sow is not the body to be, not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, because perhaps of wheat or some other grain. So even when you think, if, if you know anything, like you're, you see what is sprouted, it grows, and then we see, you know, amber waves of grain. The stalk does not look like the same, like this oval little kernel. And yet it comes from it. It is connected to it. You say the kernel is wheat, but you also say that the stalk and then its subsequent seeds, that's wheat. So it's still wheat, but it is completely different. And this is what Paul is trying to use in this analogy. And it's important to recognize this. Because, and even this morning, you know, when we think about our bodies, we look at our bodies, we think of, your body's pains and its aches and you're sitting on the hard pew and you're like, why don't they get chairs? Or whatever. Or you're like, no, I'm going to tough it out. I like the pews. You think of all your blemishes, all of your scars, all of your wounds, all that's stretched and beat up, your body is just the bare kernel. It's just the bare kernel. But this is also why we have to remind ourselves that although the body is amazing, and it is, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as David says. But our body is subject to the curse. And so self-preservation of this body can only go so far. 
It can only go so far. Our measures to use wisdom for our health only go so far. Our physical fitness only goes so far. Healthy eating, good hygiene only goes so far. Because our body is still the bare kernel in this life and the kernel is meant to be sown and it will die. We read in verse 38, But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. It's a remarkable statement. Because what Paul is telling us is that you are not trapped in the wrong body. People, a lot of people say that today. I'm trapped in the wrong body. You are not trapped in the wrong body. God chose your body for you. And so you need to embrace his gift of the body that he has chosen to give you. You need to look after it. It's it's the gift that he gave you. Look after it. You don't need to worship it, but you need to look after it. I'm just thinking of the teenagers here. You know, your, your body is God's chosen gift to you. Even younger adults, you, you don't want to despise your body. Nancy Piercy said this, Young people are trying to live out a worldview that does not match their true nature, and it is tearing them apart with its pain and heartache. It's because they're not accepting the body that God has chosen to gift them. God gives this gift, this body that he's chosen for you. We have to recognize that distinction. But then it's also important to recognize that our body that he has given to us is of a certain kind. He says in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. So he's going to differentiate between kinds here. These different kinds. Paul's trying to show these distinctions of kinds of beings. And it's interesting again here to see that he doesn't say there are different kinds of human beings. There is, it's been said, but there is, there, there's not a sense in which there are different kinds of races. There is only one race, the human race. We can speak of ethnicities and various things and distinctions that way, but there is only one kind of human being. That's a human being. There are no human beings and then subhumans. Throughout history, man and his sin has wanted to differentiate kinds of beings, kinds of human beings between the humans and the subhumans. It's a terrifying result. Human beings are created in the image of God, and it shouldn't need to be said, but it must be said, animals are not. Birds are not. Fish are not. You can dress your dog up. But it is not created in the image of God. And to be clear, this is why our 
society's elevation of the dignity of pets, and I know you might be a pet haver, pet owner, pet lover, but the elevation of pets, you see it. I mean, you, I, I can, you can spot somebody's worldview by how they treat their dog. Endangered animals, all that elevation. Think of, think of the care for animals that is expressed. Well, it's hypocritical. When there's human beings, babies, or the elderly who are easily disposed of. Disposed of. It's anti-human. That literally, think of the word, it is literally inhumane. It is inhumane how we treat other human beings in this manner. And yet, ironically, it's supposed to be the humane society that then might even be elevating the status of animals too far. But it's interesting. Fish, birds, other animals, and human beings can have similar characteristics. We all have eyeballs. But they are not the same kind of beings. It's very important because, just, just think, secularism is trying to destroy all of these distinctions, and this is another one of them. The distinction between animals and people. So, let the people starve so that we can protect the one endangered animal. No, no, the people are created in the image of God. We want to steward the animals, absolutely. But let's not, let's not get the cart before, before the horse here. And, and so Paul then, by clarifying then this, he's clarifying these different kinds of beings. He wants us to think not only about different kinds but then different glories. Different glories. Now, and we're not used to thinking about anyone having glory except God. I, I mean, at least certainly in church here, we think of God's glory. And the only time we think about maybe glory in a human context, like we really think about it, is the glory of sports. And so then here's your Super Bowl reference. Some people care. Um, <laughs> It's good. I'm not saying I'm not going to watch it. But that's the glory of winning, the glory of the championship. Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Do you see what he's done there? Yeah, animals and human beings share similar characteristics, but they are of a different kind. And he is just saying that the heavenly body is of a distinct kind in its glory. It's on a different level. And then he again uses then a natural phenomenon, the natural world, as an analogy. Sometimes we think, oh, well, you can't, use a natural, you can't use a natural world as an analogy. Well, Paul does. Verse 41, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. 
maybe you're a person that, that thinks like this, I don't do it enough. But, but it's interesting just thinking of the differing glory of these heavenly bodies. Of course, Paul's referring to a supernatural glory or that kind of thing, uh, kind of the weight of magnificence and significance. But even if we looked in terms of weight and mass, I, I, I looked it up. So, so the sun has a mass, it's actually called its solar mass, That's the equivalent of 330,000 Earths. 330,000 Earths. That makes up one solar mass. In other words, the mass of our sun. And, And at the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way, amongst many galaxies, but at the center of the Milky Way is a black hole. And it is surrounded by perhaps 12 but they say maybe there's thousands of other black holes. And each of these black holes has a mass that is between 5 to 30 times the mass of the sun. And then right in the middle, you've got this super gigantic black hole at the center of our single galaxy and it has then an exponentially larger mass than the dozens of black holes surrounding it star differs from star in glory and yet yet as samuel rutherford said if there were ten thousand thousand millions of worlds and as many heavens full of men and angels Christ would not be pinched to supply all our wants and to fill us all. Christ is a well of life, but who knoweth how deep it is to the bottom. See, that's it. You know, for you and me, we just have very thin, small thoughts of God so that We're stunned when we think of the natural world and all of its magnificence and weight of glory. But then think of then God's glory, the heavenly bodies and their glory, is of a different kind. It's off the chart. So we have to understand, as it were, these cosmic differences in glory. We have to grapple with the wonder and the awe of these differing glories. And then we've, we've then, what it does when you start thinking in those big terms like that, what it does, it shrinks you down, doesn't it? It shrinks you down. And then when you're shrunk down, then your desire for control has to be released. You've got to let go. And we have to admit that there are glories beyond our comprehension even as we seek apprehension as we attempt to do that. But then Paul is doing this all simply to set us up because then he says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. See, this isn't just trying to say, oh yeah, well, I think the tomb was empty. Correct. 
but it's to see the gravity of what the resurrection of the dead entails. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. And and that's what Paul's going to do. He's going to introduce this series of contrasts between death and resurrection. And he's going to do it by connecting this planting metaphor to all the others. Josh Carey mentioned this planting metaphor at the men's breakfast for the guys that were there yesterday. This sowing and then sprouting and then reaping. That's the picture. So what is sown, you can think of the list. What is sown is perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown a natural body. I just think that's, that's not very pleasant. That's not, that's not feeling strong and successful. That's perishable in dishonor, in weakness. That's the natural body. I'll just ask you, you, you know, you, you've maybe had this experience, I would wonder, but when you're in the hospital next to somebody's bed or in a hospice and you're watching someone die, And you can have bright windows in those places. You can have flowers in the room. But there's no no dispute that dying is a hard, hard passage. Death is not noble, but ignoble. And it is the progressive weakening of the body. And you know what I'm talking about if you've watched someone die. Weak blood pressure. Weak breathing. Weak bowels. It's dishonoring to die. And that's why nobody wants to think about it or talk about it or go near it. They want somebody else to deal with it. But this is the end of the natural body. The Greek phrase for the natural body here, and I'm going to give you the phrase so that you can kind of remember because I want you to remember it, is soma sukakos. Soma sukakos. Soma is referring to body. Sukakos, well, it sounds like maybe our term for psychology. This is the body that is a soulish body, a natural body, a body of someone who is created in the image of God, but a body, nevertheless, that is subject to the curse. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now, the critical condition that Paul makes is for the believer in Jesus Christ. When they die, their demeaning death is not the end. It's not the end. Their dead body, he says, verse 43, is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. But what a contrast. Glory 
and power. Glory and power. These are not things to be ashamed of. These are the believer's destiny to have glory, to have power, to have the mass, the weight of consequence. This glory is so massive. Think of this, friend. If you're a Christian believer, this glory is so massive that it requires heaven to hold you up. Only heaven could hold you up with that kind of mass of glory. And to have power. Power. Power in the resurrection. Power to to act. Power to think. Power to see. Power to explore. I remember the first time my old seminary professor, he suggested to me that when we are resurrected, we will spend eternity exploring the universe that God has made. The Milky Way galaxy will be our playground. Is that even, is that even on your radar? Is that even in your thought process of the glories that you will have and the power that you will have in the resurrection? See, this isn't, this isn't comic book imagination. This isn't the Marvel multiverse. This is not speculations about mythology. This is the resurrected power and glory that will be existential. It will be existential for the believer. That's what you will taste and see. You will know that the Lord is good in that way. How is this possible? Well, it's because, verse 44, our bodies will be raised a spiritual body. Now just think of that phrase, spiritual body. Spiritual body, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Think about it. Spirit, it's not body. So a spiritual body. It's normally spiritual and material don't usually go together, but this is then, if you add soma sukakos, this is soma pneumaticos. Soma pneumaticos. And of course, pneuma sounds like what? Sounds like spirit. The body then transformed by God, the Holy Spirit. This is the soma pneumaticos. This is the contrast then. It's it's the contrast between these two bodies, between soma sukakos and soma pneumaticos. Both are bodies, but they are different kinds of bodies with different kinds of glory. Romans 8.18 confirms this. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory, the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you think of that comparison. It's not worth comparing. But then actually in Romans 8.18, I think the better translation is, it's better to say the glory that is to be revealed into us. Glory revealed into us. Not just that we'll see glory, but glory will be revealed into us. We'll be bursting forth with glory. 
And that's, that's what Paul is trying to get our eyes to see, is the bursting forth of that glory. Well then, as Paul has pointed out all these contrasts between the natural and the spiritual, he wants us to move to even what is more important, and is the contrast between the two Adams. The two Adams, you see at verse 45, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. We already introduced, talking about the last, Adam, uh, in previous sermons. But this is where we find that powerful description of Jesus, the term, the last, Adam. And this is an example of what we talk about when we're studying the Bible, which is referred to as typology. Typology. And typology is one of the ways that literature, even the Bible, connects individuals or institutions or stories, connects them together. And so that the contour of the one figure provides then the shape for the other. And they're different, but they have similarities. And so looking at the sacrificial system, for example, in the Old Testament, the temple and all of the sacrifices, well, then that's a type of Christ. How, does a, how can a building be a, a type of a guy? Well, Jesus could actually say, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up again in John 2, 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was, he was showing that he's the fulfillment of the typology of the temple. The temple pointed to Jesus. Jesus is not one of many Adams. Jesus is the last Adam. There is no other. Now, as we said last week, he is the founder of a new humanity like Adam was. As I said, there's only one human race. But in Christ, there is only one new humanity. You have to believe in him to be a part of it. And we have in verse 45, one of the other distinctives of the last Adam. Christ can do what Adam could not. Adam, you remember in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, Adam was given life when God breathed upon him. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature, a living soul. A soma sukakos if you will. Adam received, he received life by the breath of God. Adam was passive and God was active. And Adam became this living nephesh is the Hebrew word, a living soul. And so that's where you, you get this language in the Hebrew that's very similar to what Paul's doing in the Greek with the soma sukakos. But the last Adam, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus does not receive life passively. Jesus gives life. He gives life. Jesus said in John 15, 26, he said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus sends, gives the Spirit. Jesus the last Adam, he gives life. 
by the Spirit. In John chapter 6, he said, Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? John 6, 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is Jesus, the last Adam, who is a life-giving spirit. See, Jesus was raised not as the Soma Sukkakos, but as the Soma Pneumaticos, a spiritual body, so that in the resurrection, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. And when we talk about these things, we're, we're getting into deep mysteries. But Paul attempts to explain it further. He says in verse 46, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, man of dust, so that's Adam. The second man is from heaven, that's Christ. And as for the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of or belonging to heaven. So the last Adam is the man of heaven. The man of heaven. Paul makes this contrast between Adam and the last Adam, between the destiny of dust for all those who are in Adam and the destiny of glory for all those who are in Christ. Just as we have born the image of the man of dust, verse 49, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the we referring to Christian believers. But that's a promise. That's a promise. That's a promise that we have to hold on to. All of us are of the kind that we will die under the curse. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, then there's the promise. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So think about it. This is not merely then that we will be without sin in heaven, although that's true. We'll reflect perfect Christ-likeness in our moral character. That's all true, but it's not the whole thing. We will also bear the image of the man of heaven, the last Adam. We will have the Soma Pneumaticos, so that just as Jesus has a resurrected, glorified body, then we have the same too. Now, think about the life of Jesus. If you, if you turn to John chapter 20 and verse 17, you remember Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after he was resurrected. And he says this really strange thing to Mary. You remember the scene. He says, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. The resurrected body of Jesus, think about this, Mary wanted to cling on to it. The resurrected body of Jesus did not belong to the earth anymore. It belonged in heaven. 
It belonged in heaven. Jesus lingered, but he, his body and he himself belonged in heaven. What did Jesus do in John 20? When he met the disciples, he said to them in John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, he says, Peace, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then this, the last Adam, he did something. Note this, this is really weird. This is very unexpected what the last Adam did at this point. John 20, 22, it illustrates our point here in 1 Corinthians 15. John 20, 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ breathed into you. You have the promise of being sown, yes, perishable, but raised imperishable. You have the promise of bearing the image of the man of heaven. You have that promise. Francis Schaeffer said, To be a true Bible-believing Christian, we must understand that it is not enough simply to acknowledge that the universe has these two halves, this, this supernatural half of reality and the natural or material half of reality. The supernatural and the natural parts, if you will. The Christian life means living in the two halves, in the supernatural and the natural. I would suggest, Schaefer says, I would suggest that it is perfectly possible for a Christian to be so infiltrated by 20th century thinking, this isn't 20th century, that he lives most of his life as though the supernatural were not there. Indeed, I would suggest that all of us do this to some extent. The supernatural does not touch the Christian only at the new birth and then at his death or at the second coming of Christ, leaving the believer on his own in a naturalistic world during all their time in between. Nothing could be further from the biblical view. Being a biblical Christian means living in the supernatural now, not only theoretically, but in practice, end quote. On the drive-in, I asked my family, i got to test my sermon out before I get here, um, I asked my family, what, what was actually more important to preach about today? The convoys or the resurrection? And like, you know, well-taught kids, they said, the resurrection, Dad. But the convoys would be right up there. And I, and I just made this comment, and this is how I've been thinking about it. I, I said, we've, we've all been so subject to propaganda. Not the propaganda you might think of, but the propaganda of Satan and his secularized world, 
We're so inundated with that that we think that solutions without reference to God are actually what we need. When what we need is to have our eyes lifted up to see the glory of Jesus Christ in all of His supernatural power and weight and mass. And to see that, and then to recognize that the resurrection is the most significant thing in the universe, not what's on the news cycle. And that the glories to come are overwhelming. We need to live in both halves of reality, not acting as if one doesn't exist. Our danger, even as we deny the supernatural, is that we tend to insert all kinds of speculation into our thinking. Speculation about the supernatural. We'll fill in the blanks. We'll say, God told me. We'll say, you know, he didn't speak to me directly. I'll say, God told me this. Or we'll, we'll make all kinds of claims for our imagination. We'll say, the devil made me do it. When, yes, he operates and he can be resisted and our own flesh, our own lusts, our own desires, our own passions are the source of our sinful actions. We'll speculate about disasters to come when we don't know what tomorrow brings. And as Jesus said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? We speculate and we imagine. But then we fail to see what God has uncovered, what he has revealed, what he has said about the glories even of the life to come. He's revealed that there is a universe of angels and demons and that there is a devil, but he's on a leash and can be resisted by the noble children of God. He's revealed that our life in Adam involves suffering, decay, death, yes. But our life in the last Adam, if we trust in him alone, promises power, glory, and a supernatural body that can rise from the dead and explore the heavens. Why do Christians bury their dead? It's actually an open question, right? Why why do Christians bury the dead? Well, it's because we believe in the dignity of the body that was given by God's choice. We believe in that dignity. And we also believe in the power of the resurrection. Even the power to raise a worm bait skeleton. God can do it. A a body decayed and corrupting that is hidden away in shame and weakness. God is able to raise that body in power and glory to the celestial city to existential adventure throughout the universe forever. He's able to do that. So yes, I was even asked this morning, yes, yes, a Christian can be cremated. And if someone foolishly spreads your ashes through the Kananaskis or takes them out and dumps them in the Pacific Ocean, yeah, that, that isn't really going to matter because God is in the dust removal business. He can gather up all of that. He can gather it all up and resurrect it. And you think, well, that was a waste of time. But anybody doing that kind of thing, they don't understand that we're all going to die and decay. We're all going to be sown like the man of dust 
But God will gather all the particles of your dead carcass and he will resurrect them in glory because the last Adam is a life-giving spirit if you believe with true saving faith. So my hope is as you leave today, as we have taken a little glimpse at the glories of the resurrection, you will not look at what's right in front of your nose, but you will think, I'm going to die. Am I going to bear the image of the man of heaven, yes or no? And if you are, then live like you are going to have power and glory in a way that this world has never seen, except when Jesus rose from the dead. Go today with new eyes. Open your eyes to the unseen world that God has revealed to us and marvel at your destiny in Christ and be terrified at a destiny without him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would cause us to have eyes to see, even eyes in our hearts, so that our hearts can see and believe by faith. Open our eyes miraculously that we would see even into the unseen world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship the true and living God, even this morning. Please rise. What are you sowing and what are you going to reap? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do you know that? Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up, friends. Look to Christ and look to the resurrection from the dead. Believe on him and be saved. Go in peace. You're dismissed.